please grab your Bible if you have it with you. Today, I would encourage you to turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the passage that we're looking at is in your order of worship. But we will be looking at other passages outside that speak into understanding this passage. So if you have a, the Bible on your phone, you could pull that out. Uh, we have pew Bibles on the back um, side of the benches, so you can feel free to grab one of those if you need one. And if you've been with us, we're, this letter uh, is written by the Apostle Paul, and it is written to a young pastor who is ministering in the city of Ephesus, this Greek city. And Paul is writing to encourage him in his work of ministry as Paul begins to draw near to the end of his life when he would be martyred in Rome. And so you remember last week that we, we looked at this presentation of the gospel where, where Paul presents the, the good news of Christianity, but not just in an abstract way, but really bearing on his own life, his own experience of the grace of God that, that ended with this doxology where he couldn't contain himself, but he broke out into praise of the Lord. And then today, in verse 18, Paul is returning to a theme that he was touching on all the way back in verse 3. In verse 3, he talked about his charge, this charge of Timothy to oppose false teachers. And then also in verse 5, this charge to promote love in the local church. So he's coming back to this calling, this charge of Timothy, and he wants to encourage him in the warfare of the Christian life. So again, this is 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'll begin reading in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that, that today we would Use your promises, use your word to wage the good warfare, to be engaged in the spiritual conflict that we face in our lives in the world. So, Father, give us understanding, the understanding that we don't have in ourselves, but you can grant by your spirit. And so we pray 100% dependent on you today. Amen. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of visiting a Civil War battlefield, but there's a, there's a certain type of person who works at Civil War battlefields, I've found. And I think it's often the same type of person who does Civil War reenactments as well. And, and this type of person, if you know someone like this, has read every book on the Civil War. They know everything there is to know about every battle every general, every maneuver, every aspect of it. And, and I always find it to be a remarkable thing. And I don't know what it is with the Civil War. You see some of the same with other wars, maybe 
World War II, but especially the Civil War, there's this obsession that people have with it quite often. And, and I find that they can know more about the Civil War than probably the greatest scholars who have PhDs and who have studied it, but it's this self-study of this war, understanding every aspect of it. And I think that as Christians, we're also called to be experts in a certain warfare and understanding every aspect of it, of this self-research. Uh, but it's, it's not an abstract thing, just looking at the history of the past, but it's very practical. Because as we see, every single one of us is gay and is engaged in a type of warfare. And that's what Paul is talking about in verse 18, where he's speaking to Timothy. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And that is the main point of this text before us, to wage the good warfare, to understand every aspect, to be experts in it, to know everything there is to know about this warfare. And it's interesting that the, the Greek word translated warfare is strateion, uh, where we get actually the English word strategy. But in, in Greek, it really has to do with warfare, with conflict, with uh, military engagement. And what Paul is saying here is, Timothy, you need to be an ex expert in this warfare. You need to wage this warfare. But it's not just any warfare that he is called to wage, but he says that it is the, the good warfare. And so what is the, the good warfare as opposed to the bad warfare? Well, I think that when it talks about the good warfare, it's not warfare, it's not the crusades taking up arms against other nations, not physical arms, but this is describing this spiritual conflict of the Christian life. It's what Paul described in another letter that went to the church in Ephesus, uh, the letter of the Ephesians, chapter 6, where he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That that is our battle today cosmic battle against spiritual forces. And you and I are enlisted into the army of the king to wage this battle. But then we face the question, how do we do it? How do we wage the good warfare in service of the king? And that's what Paul is describing in the verses before us today. And so we see four answers today to that question. How do we wage the good warfare? Here's the first answer. How do we wage the good warfare that we, we wage the good warfare by remembering the promises of God? By remembering the promises of God. Look in your Bible at verse 18. He says, I charge you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them. In other words, by these prophecies formally delivered to Timothy, he's saying, by these prophecies, I want you to 
wage the good warfare. We know from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, that uh, these were prophecies, at least some of the prophecies, delivered to Timothy at his ordination service when the elders laid their hands on him, appointing him to ministry. But we don't know the exact content of the prophecies. But what it seems like is that these prophecies in some way touched on Timothy's usefulness for ministry. And that these prophecies were really promises directed to Timothy individually by prophets within the church that were designed to encourage him for the work ahead, the difficult work of spiritual warfare. And that's why Paul then says, Timothy, I want you to wage the good warfare, and I want you to do that by means of these promises that you received under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from prophets in your midst. Use them to, to encourage you for the work ahead. And for us today, we actually find encouragement in a very similar way. Not an identical way, but a very similar way. We don't have specific prophecies about us as individuals, our usefulness for ministry. Remember that at this time, it was, it was a unique period in the history of the church where the New Testament was not yet completed, where there were living prophets and apostles within the church uh, speaking the words of prophecy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But now we find ourselves in the time after the apostles, the, the post-apostolic age. We have a closed canon that in the church we don't expect the word of living prophets speaking to us, but we expect the word of the living and active scripture, sharper than any two-edged sword, cutting to the division of heart and soul and, and marrow. That is where we receive the promises of God. But the promises that we receive, the prophetic word that is spoken over our lives, is no less important, no less practical, no less relevant than the word that Timothy received in his own life. And that's because the Bible is breathed out by God. And as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so if you want to be complete, if you want to be equipped for every good work, it is not through some sort of extra biblical prophecy, but it is through the word of God that is sufficient, that is complete, that, that equips us for every good work. But it equips us for the spiritual battle, for spiritual warfare, through reliance on the promises of God delivered to us. And you say, well, what does that look like in a very practical way in your life? Well, here's an example. This is not identical for every person, but this maybe would help us get into the place of imagining what it looks like to, to wage the good warfare by means of the promises of Scripture. But imagine that you're having a hard time loving someone in your life, somebody who's very hard to love. And you find yourself struggling, wondering if a real Christian could have the feelings and the thoughts that you're having towards that person. And then you also start to recognize that there is a dimension of spiritual warfare, spiritual conflict, that you're not waging war just against flesh and blood, but against principalities. 
And now within that battle, there is a great temptation to, to give up, to just abandon the relationship altogether, or maybe even worse, the temptation to give in to anger, to bitterness, to lash out at the person. And so you're wondering, how do I wage this difficult battle that we find so often in relationships in a fallen world? Well, maybe then you're reading scripture. You're reading it in the morning before you go to work and you come across a passage like Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. It's one of many promises in scripture, but somehow it strikes you and you say, wait, God is the one who began the good work in me. God is the one who will bring it to completion. This is a prophetic word of the Holy Spirit spoken over me as a believer, and therefore I can trust the Lord today that he's working in my heart, he's working in my life, he's going to bring it to completion, and therefore he can sustain me that he can bring me through this spiritual conflict to be able to to reconcile, to be able to love, even when the person is hard to love. And that's just one example, but, but I hope you see how just as Timothy took the prophetic word spoken over him, used it to fight the good fight, to wage the good warfare, that we can do the same with innumerable promises of God as we search the scriptures and apply the promises to our own lives and hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's our our first point today, that we wage the good warfare by remembering the promises of God. But then second, and here's the, the second answer to the question, how do we wage the good warfare? That we wage the good warfare by holding faith. Holding faith. Look at verse 19. Paul says that we, we wage the good warfare by holding faith and a good conscience. As you look at that word, faith, and we remember that this is one of the the weapons that Paul talks about believers taking up for spiritual conflict in Ephesians chapter 6. He says that we take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And so Paul is saying, take up that shield of faith. Take up this powerful weapon that you can use to wage this good warfare, this good battle of the Christian life. And of course, faith is trust, it's reliance on Christ alone for salvation. The Westminster, sorry, the Heidelberg Catechism, rather, uh, one of the the great Reformation-era summaries of Christian doctrine says that, that true faith is not only a sure knowledge by which we hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture, it is also a wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted not only to others but also to me forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. That is faith. That is this reliance, this trust, this Belief in Christ alone for salvation. And faith is crucial. It's indispensable for the spiritual battle. And in a way, we could say that that's true for any battle. Even for earthly battle, a certain type of trust and faith is necessary. That if you are enlisted into an army, 
You probably need a certain degree of faith in your leaders. You need a certain level of faith in the cause for which you are fighting. You need a certain level of faith that success in your mission is at least possible, if not assured. And you can think about what happened recently in Afghanistan, where the Afghani army, they lost faith in their ability to hold back the Taliban. They lost faith in the American army to be able to protect them any longer. They lost faith in the, the sense that they could even win. And so what did they do so often was just, they just left. They defected, they, they left their equipment and deserted. And that's what happens when you no longer have faith in the warfare, no longer faith in the success of your mission. And of course, it's the same for spiritual warfare as well. That to wage the good warfare, we need faith. We need faith in the cause of Christ. We need faith in the goodness and the trustworthiness of Christ. We need faith in the faithfulness of Jesus to us, that he is going to win the battle, that, that victory is not only possible, that victory is assured, that if we enter into the conflict, that we're not going to get slaughtered, we're not going to be defeated, but we know the victory is ours in Christ Jesus, so we can fight with boldness and confidence, knowing with firm faith for whom we battle. And so that is then our, our second point today. The second answer to the question, how do we wage the good warfare? But now let's look at the third answer to that question. That we wage the good warfare by holding a good conscience. That we wage the good warfare by holding a good conscience. Look at verse 19. Again, Paul says that we are to wage the good warfare by holding faith and a good conscience. And so you could say that faith is our trust and our reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. But a good conscience is our capacity for moral self-evaluation. That by a good conscience, we're able to examine our hearts, to examine our lives, to search whether or not we actually have true faith, whether we are in the faith. And that is what we read in Scripture so often. For instance, James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 2, verse 18, says that some will say, you have faith and I have works, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And so for James, the sure evidence of true faith is good works, that, that the fruit of true faith is love for God, love for neighbor. And that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, says that believers should examine themselves. He says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. And so what Paul is saying there is, is that we examine ourselves, that we turn on our good conscience, we turn on our power of moral self-evaluation, and we say, am I in the faith? Do I have faith? 
Do I have the fruit of repentance? Am I trusting in Jesus? Do I desire the things of God? Do I see a general pattern of obedience? Not perfection in this life, but a general pattern of seeking after the Lord. Do I have true faith? And if you're struggling there, and if you turn on the power of self-evaluation and it feels like you're coming up short, um, it could be a sign that, that you are a true believer who just has a fragile conscience, that, that you actually need to be encouraged and strengthened to go back to the promises of God to you and to rely on those promises. That's one possibility. But another possibility is that that feedback of the good conscience is giving accurate information. And maybe you have professed faith. Maybe you've been part of a church. Maybe you've been part of the church your whole life. Maybe you've been baptized. But when you really look at your life, when you examine yourself in the light of a good conscience that you recognize, no, I don't know if I actually have true faith. And if that's where you are, then the response is never just try harder, work harder. But the answer is always then to go back to Jesus, to go back to your relationship with him, to say, Jesus, I need you. Show yourself to me. Give me more of Jesus. Give me more of Christ. Let me have faith. Let me rely on you. Always focus on that relationship with Jesus because it's that faith, that reliance on Jesus that will then overflow in obedience in your life. It starts with relationship with Christ. So again, we wage the good warfare by holding faith and a good conscience. So that's the third answer to our question, how do we wage the good warfare? But then here's the, the fourth and the final answer to that question, that we wage the good warfare by noticing the shipwreck of others who have rejected a good conscience that we wage the good warfare by noticing the shipwreck of others who have rejected a good conscience. Look at verse 18 again. Paul says, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, in other words, by rejecting this good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Now, as you look at that shipwreck of their faith, there's something interesting actually going on in the original language there that the, the translators of the ESV are helping us interpret the text by, by choosing one possible interpretation in favor of a different interpretation. Because in the original Greek, it, 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 there is, it actually doesn't say their faith. It's just the faith that they have made shipwreck of the faith. And so the translators of the ESV, as, as a, a good possibility, said, well, I think that it, by the faith, it means the faith of these individuals. And so we're going to translate it their faith. But I was helped by a, a commentary here on the Greek text that was pointing out that usually in this letter, when it talks about the faith, it's not just talking about objective faith of individuals, but rather about the the faith, the set of beliefs, the way of talking about the Christian religion. And of course, they didn't shipwreck the Christian religion by their uh, turning away from a good conscience. But according to this, this commentary, uh, looking at the way that this is used elsewhere in Greek literature, that this construction appears where a ship is going along and then it shipwrecks 
off the coast of a location. And so you could actually translate this that they have made shipwreck really of themselves off the shore of the faith. And I found that to be just a fascinating way to think about it because it actually, I think, helps us understand how it fits into other teaching about faith and salvation. Because the Bible is clear elsewhere that, that we can't lose true faith because it's a work of the Lord. We said that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, that faith is his work, not our work. And, and so we can, we're not going to lose our salvation if God is the one working in it. And that's actually what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2. He says that some in the church, that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain that they were not of us. And that's kind of a mouthful, but what John is saying is that there were people who seemed to have faith, were claiming true faith. They went out from us, perhaps rejecting Christianity or going after false doctrine. And he's saying, John is saying, they seem to be of us, but they were not really of us. For if they were really of us, they would have not gone out from us. So if you have true faith, that faith is not going to be wrecked or destroyed in the end. It might be weakened. It might seem as if it's going to be wrecked. But yet, what it seems happened to these, these men, to these people who rejected a good conscience, is that they came so close to true faith. They were on the shore of true faith itself. They were almost there. They almost landed. But yet, they ended up in a, this terrible spiritual shipwreck just on the coast of true faith. One of the greatest tragedy, tragedies to almost be at your destination, but then not make it to not arrive. And according to Paul, there were two men who were an example of this path, who made a shipwreck of themselves on the shore of the true faith. He mentions one uh, who's uh, Hymenaeus, uh, and Hymenaeus is actually mentioned in Paul's second letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2.16, it says, avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene, among whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus, whom have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. And so apparently this man, Hymenaeus, swerved from the faith that, that he, he used to claim this outward allegiance to the faith, to the Christian religion, but then he started teaching false doctrine, claiming that the resurrection had already happened and it was upsetting the faith of, of many. But then this other man mentioned here, Alexander, is most likely the same person also mentioned in Paul's second letter to Timothy. So this is the second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 14. He says, Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. And so this man, Alexander, is another one who opposed strongly the message of Paul. And it says, did Paul great harm? We don't know exactly what the harm was. And so together, these two men serve an example of the, the shipwreck, the wreckage off of the coasts of the true faith. And Paul says that they were handed over to Satan 
In other words, they, they came under church discipline. They were put out of formal membership in the church following Jesus' teaching in Matthew 18, where he says that if someone still does not repent to treat them as a Gentile or as a tax collector, as one outside the covenant, and they did this in, a, in the attempt to bring them to repentance, that they might learn not to blaspheme. But as we, as we wrap up today, then, I think it's important to remember the example of these two men. Because we said that they were so close to true faith. And they say that even with car accidents, that 52% of all accidents occur within five miles of home. 69% of accidents occur within 10 miles of home. But there is something tragic, as I said, about getting so close. You're almost there. You've almost made it home, but you don't make it. Perhaps you lose your life or end up in severe injury so close. And that we should take warning for that in our lives spiritually. That perhaps you could sit under the, the preaching of the gospel. Perhaps you could make a profession of faith. You could be baptized. You could participate in the Lord's Supper. You could serve in the local church. You could have fellowship with other believers. You could have everyone assuming for a time that you have true faith, that you were a true believer. But in the end, it was a form of hypocrisy, that it, it wasn't the true thing. And that instead of riding by the grace of God and the ship to the heavenly shore, to the new heavens and the new earth, that, that you end up on a shipwreck just as about to cross over into the celestial city, about to go through the river, but yet you don't make it. And imagine the tragedy of that. Imagine if that were you, so close, seeing the light of glory, but yet not entering into it. And that's why the, the warning of this passage is so severe. That's why we should take so seriously this call to spiritual warfare, this call to remember the promises of God, this, this call to hold to, to the faith, this call to a good conscience, this call to notice the shipwreck of others, that, that it, it guards us, it keeps us firmly on the path, waging the good warfare. And I, I mentioned at the beginning that, that this letter went to the church in Ephesus. And, and the, the last thing I, I want to do is just read the section on Christian warfare that was probably received by the church in Ephesus before they received the letter of 1 Timothy. And so perhaps as Timothy took this letter and preached it to his congregation and read it, they thought of this call to spiritual warfare. And so I'll, I'll read this, and hopefully this will be the, the encouragement for all of us to wage the good warfare of the Christian life. He says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day of evil. And having done all to stand firm, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as the shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
Take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication.